This is a Lip Media Podcast. Deviant women, 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 deviant women. Welcome to Deviant Women, the podcast where we talk to you about deviant women from history, mythology, literature, and contemporaneity. My name is Lauren. And I'm Alicia. Welcome back again to another show. I feel like I say the exact same words every time. I don't know what else to say. We do. It's continuity. It's how we introduce yeah. the show. It's, Good. it's fine. Okay. It's, it's fine. the thing. It's the thing. <laughs> well, how are you this week? Alicia? Oh, look, I'm, I'm all right. Our patrons out there will know that we uh, whinged about our uh, health problems on our most recent <laughs> Patreon content. And look, I don't want to do that again this episode, but I will just say I, I have a stomachache. I'm a bit queasy. Aww. I'm a bit nauseous. Really? Yeah. Is that just because of the burritos? I think it or is. Or is it? <laughs> I think I ate too many burritos for dinner. Yeah. Well, burritos are the type of food that you always want to go back for more and you know that going back for more is always a mistake. Yeah. But, but you, just, you do it anyway. You keep eating them. They're delicious. Because they seem so, I don't know, they seem so innocuous. They don't seem yeah. like they're going to make you feel ill. But then. They do. Is that even the word I wanted to use in yeah, relation to burritos? that's the word that came to my head. I was going to say <laughs> innocuous too. So I'm with you. I'm with you. We're actually going to make burritos in this house tomorrow night. Well, so Lauren, let me warn you. There you go. Don't overindulge in the burritos. I only ever have one burrito and then if I want a little bit more, I just put a few more beans on my plate with some like guac. Seriously? And eat those. One yes. burrito? Okay. Yeah. I had three. So <laughs> I guess I don't know how big your burritos are compared to my burritos. Uh, maybe not. I make one massive burrito and you make three small yeah, ones. Yeah, I think that's probably, yeah, let's go with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But anyway, yeah. it was too many burritos. <laughs> how are you? <laughs> well, my main problem today is that I ran out of wine tonight. So <laughs> I, I don't know how that could have happened. How, how could I have happened? run out of wine oh at God. this time of the global problems that we're having crises why why would i have run out of wine it's a question it is but how could it have happened clearly somebody's been coming to your house and drinking your wine without your knowledge i think so i think that must have been what has happened yeah it wasn't you it's not a coping mechanism of anyone in this house. Oh, <laughs> oh no, no, no! It's fine. I'm making jokes. It's fine. No, we're all good. We're all good. Yeah. Well, we do hope that everyone's doing all right out there in the yeah. world. Hope you're, um, you know, staying home and staying safe if you're able to. Of course, sure and, do. Uh, hope you're staying safe if you are still out there in the world mm. working. And if you are, fucking good job. Yeah, excellent. Or you know. Not everyone gets to enjoy the privilege of staying home. Uh, no. A lot of people, obviously, that's not the case for them. That's not as easily said as done. So we just hope that everyone out there is mm-hmm. doing the best they can in these yeah. troubling times. Well said. Yeah, and we hope that this episode may bring you a little bit of joy and reprieve. <laughs> we hope so. Will it, Lauren? Um, Will it? It's. I hope look it's not it's not a dark episode by any means like oh, there's good. no 
thankfully there's no like dark traumas in this subject's life Good. uh everything that she experienced was oh look it's not all sunshine and rainbows let's be honest but it's pretty fun like it's fantastical actually oh, i'm that's gonna good. call it fantastical oh excellent i like fantastical let's go with fantastic yeah we have a deeply kind of creative intelligent mystical woman a swedish mystic and visionary abstract artist fuck yeah member of the five, which is a great name. Whatever that means. The five who were a circle of women dedicated to communion with the high masters. Oh, my God. This sounds very theosophical to me already. Oh, does it? It does. Oh, does it? it we does. might be getting into some theosophical territory tonight. Hey. Yeah. We, well, theosophy is something that we actually haven't really discussed in an episode before, is it? Not in an episode, but for... Adelaide listeners, you might remember that two years ago, we delved real deep into theosophy when we presented our live show on Madame Blavatsky, the mother of theosophy. Um, But we've not discussed her or any other famous theosophists or any kind of theosophical (laughs) philosophy on this podcast. So will we get a little bit of that today? We will. Oh, good, good, good. I love it. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to go into some fun, like strange otherworldly territory oh that sounds like the perfect thing to do right now lauren thank you very much take us there (laughs) okay so we're talking about i don't think i've said her name yet again (laughs) hilma afklint hilma afklint who was born october 26 in 1862 so we're back in this sort of late victorian early 20th century period of time here but she was born in Karlberg palace in sweden now don't be mistaken about the name of her birthplace, Karlberg Palace, because it is actually a naval academy. Oh. She was the fourth child of Matilda and Captain Victor Afklint, a naval commander from a long line of naval commanders, and he taught at the academy. So the family were pretty well off. They're bourgeois, one might say, a very kind of level-headed bunch, not really the kind to be like into art or the supernatural Uh i see what you're saying yeah is she gonna end up being a little bit of a black sheep perhaps she may she may but having said that though like her family was still very influential so her father as well as being a naval commander he was also a mathematician a botanist and a violinist and there is some of that kind of influence that's going to come up in her work a little bit later. So we will mm. talk about that. Also, I feel like when I think about naval commanders in terms of them being like very level-headed, I think of Captain Von Trapp, <laughs> you know. So I think of her father as being like Captain Von Trapp. You know, was he's Captain like no Von nonsense. Trapp, was he a naval commander or was he just a – He was in the Navy. Was he? I don't remember yeah. that specifically. he was a captain in the Navy. The Austrian Navy? I don't know why. I don't know why Austria (laughs) had a navy. I'm sure they must have a navy. I don't know. Over the Alps. (laughs) Over the Alps. But that's that's just the way that it is, Alicia. I'm very sure that he was in the navy. You're probably right. I just I feel like maybe I forgot that because it seemed absurd at the time. Well, it is. I was actually thinking because it was on TV a couple of weeks ago (laughs) and I discovered it and I watched it, of course. Like you don't not watch The Sound of Music when it's on TV. And I do remember having that thought because I think watching it as an adult as opposed to watching it as a child, I was like, wait a minute, Austria (laughs) is not near 
near an ocean. This is a rather landlocked country. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, this is not about that brilliant film, The Sound of Music. (laughs) (laughs) But much like the Von Trapp children, she had a pretty idyllic childhood. Um, (laughs) Did she have clothes made out of curtains and sing songs? Um, one, we can imagine her so because her family used to spend their summers in this manor on the <sighs> island of Adelso in oh. Lake Malaren. And I, again, I apologize if any of my Swedish pronunciation is terrible. <laughs> so they like are living in this manor on an island and she's just out in nature, having a great time. Mm. You the know, hills like are this, alive. The hills were so alive for oh, her man. or rather the flat islands of sweden but <laughs> just same atmosphere the fjords were alive <laughs> so the family moved to stockholm and she studied art as a teenager at the tekniska skolan i don't know what tekniska means but skolan means school i do Te- know that technical i'm gonna i'm gonna have a technical oh that's a good guess that's that my sounds guess. like it would be pretty sounds right on, yes yeah But importantly, she was admitted into the Academy of Fine Arts in 1882. Okay. So the Academy had only just started admitting women. (gasps) Shock horror. (laughs) No surprises there. (laughs) And also not really any surprises. They didn't really expect huge (laughs) things from this new cohort of students. They were just letting the women in to shut everybody up. Yeah. They just expected that the women would be shit. (laughs) <laughs> We've got low hopes for you. Yeah. We're just letting you in to just placate a bunch of people. Yeah. Try and your best. Like but, you just know. go off in the corner and paint some landscapes, <laughs> do some portraits. It'll be pleasant. Yeah. You'll make good entertaining housewives yeah. one day. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and she did indeed study pretty much like landscapes and portraits. And she also became really adept at botanical drawings. And she was so good. She graduated with honors in 1887 and she was allocated a shared studio in central Stockholm as a scholarship. Oh, well, yeah. So she graduated and she was like a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. And it was here that she really started painting. And she was, again, initially she's just sort of painting these botanical drawings, the landscape, she's doing portraits on commission. She's just sort of like, earning her way, starting to build her reputation. And she did start to attract a little bit of success. Um, She even served briefly as the secretary for the Association of Swedish Women Artists. Um, And Clint is, I did Google this association and the only name that kept coming up was Clint. So I'm assuming that F. Clint was like probably one of their most successful um, members. I'm sure there are others though, that many other excellent female artists who belonged to the association. Association of Swedish Women Artists. And can I just ask at this point as well, so she's doing landscapes and portraits. So it's the 1880s, you're saying, that we're yeah. in. So when she's at, yeah, studying. So what sort of style of portraiture and landscape is she doing here? Is this very realist? Is this very sort More, of... Yes, certainly. Like there's a big distinction in her paintings between, I guess, yes, these portraits and things and then what we will see later in her career. So this is much more conventional, painted in the style that she was taught at the university, very typical of its time. So I guess 1880s, it's sort of impressionistic, but I don't know that she's as directly influenced by impressionism 
as some other artists who will come to be associated with, or she will come to be associated with mm, okay. later, if that makes sense. I kind yep. of don't really know how to talk about it. The art I think of with the 1880s, you know, coming into the 1900s is like, yes, impressionism, that breakaway from realism, mm. but there's still a lot of art that is very sort of, even in that pre-Raphaelite sort of vein where it's very realistic, it's very... I would say that it is very realistic. Like if you look at her paintings, like if you Google her landscapes, they are so at odds with the work that she's famous for. And it's the type of stuff that you... (laughs) I don't mean this to sound condescending, but they're the type of paintings that like your grandma would have on the wall. Do you know what I mean? Like these landscapes of like fields and trees yeah. and rivers yeah. and definitely it's like pastoral yeah, okay. realism. Yeah, got it. Got it. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. The, oh, it's like even the tones and the color, like everything about it is so different from her later work. And mm-hmm. I, th- I actually like, I think it's really cool if you're listening at home, maybe Google Hilma Afklint landscapes get that picture in your mind because in a moment I will tell you another thing to Google and when you Google that it's going to be like what the fuck how are these the same people that have created these works okay yeah yeah so obviously very much what she was taught in school here yes a hundred percent what she's being taught in school but then so actually this was kind of a large part of her career because it's not until 1906 that she started on quite a different trajectory right and she's in her like oh my gosh she's in her 40s by now right that she starts this very very different work and they I guess she started the work that would make her one of the 20th century's most intriguing artists and these are these enormous in like some of them are huge eight ten foot canvases these boldly colorful abstract pieces they're these geometric non-representative shapes things like circles spirals triangles and pyramids explosions of colors these like gorgeous oranges and pinks and blues they kind of feel a little bit like sort of like 70s psychedelia okay that's not a great comparison but that's I guess even though they're not they're very far removed from that as well both in style and time but there's just not that much else that I can think to compare it to because their abstractionism, this is proto-abstractionism. But at the same time, a lot of the other abstract artists like Kladinsky are doing something very, very different and doing it after her. So, however, despite this extraordinary body of work, Clint was not known. She's been completely left out of the art world until she was rediscovered, quote unquote, rediscovered very recently. So I want to jump forward in time to 1970 when her entire collection, so her nephew ended up with all of her work, right? And I'm going to explain a little bit more about that in a moment. But her nephew donated or tried to donate her entire collection to Stockholm's Moderna Museet as a gift, but the museum declined. So that was the first attempt made to get her works really out into the world. What? Because like the museum was just like, don't know who it is, don't care. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. 
1984, she was discovered by an art scholar and her works were first presented at a conference. But even then, recognition was very slow. So in 1986, she was included in an exhibition called The Spiritual in Art at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. And then finally, in 2013, she was included in Stockholm's Moderna Musée, which is the first museum that had like turned away her collection. (laughs) But things are still slow. Okay, she's starting to gain some recognition. But it wasn't until 2019. That was only last year. 2019. uh, An exhibition at New York's Guggenheim Museum that really brought her to the attention of the masses. The exhibition was like no exaggeration, a fucking smash. So it had a six-month run which broke attendance records and it was heralded by critics as the must-see exhibition of the season. This was also Afklint's first ever solo exhibition, (sighs) 75 years after her death. Oh, my God. Okay. So, (laughs) So she's pretty much just exploded into the art sort of mainstream within the last couple of years. Yeah. So much so that there's actually a biography that's coming out in English next year and a documentary called Beyond the Visible uh, directed by Helena Drishka. I'm not sure. I'm sorry. Uh, Which was released this week. I didn't even know that it was coming out until I was doing the research for this episode. And I was like, oh, my God, that's now. (laughs) So uh, I think it's playing at selected cinemas. Although I think by the time this episode comes out, it, its run may have finished because it was a really short run, but hopefully it'll get wider release soon. Mm. But in a statement, Dierschka, the director, said that she had been at an exhibition in Berlin when she first discovered F. Clint. And this is a quote from the press release. Uh, she said, but why have they been kept from me for so long? I almost felt personally insulted when I read that this was a new discovery and the paintings have been hidden for decades. Could that be true? Paintings in this size are hard to hide. And who would be interested in marginalising this artist's accomplishments? And why? And in the trailer, artist Josiah McKelney points out that by contrast, the men who, quote, invented abstraction Uh Mm -hmm. did so very timidly with small steps, like it was part of this process, part of the wider movements of modernism, I suppose, right? Yeah. And then here is Af Clint who came out with these giant, bold, geometric paintings right from the get-go in 1906, Mm -hmm. which was five years before Kandinsky, right? (laughs) Well, I'm already convinced. I'm already convinced. It's a fucking conspiracy. Okay, okay. Well... Then I've got some news for you, Alicia, because... It is a a conspiracy? Well, okay. Perhaps her absence from the annals of art history are not entirely the result of a male-centric or male-dominated art uh, <laughs> world, okay? Okay. F. Clint, she sort of knew that her works were pretty fucking weird, <laughs> not just because abstract art itself was very avant-garde, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it was really also about how she created this art. And she didn't really feel confident that the establishment would take her seriously or understand it. And Gee, so wow, she... I wonder why she thought that. <laughs> You're well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and 
And so she, like on purpose, she kept the work really hidden. She rarely exhibited in her lifetime. And she destroyed all of her correspondences before her death in 1944. And, and this is a really important one, she had a clause in her will that the crates containing her work not be opened for 20 years following her death. Really? So they remain dormant in the care of this nephew who I was talking about before. And he's another naval man, right? So he's like followed the family traditions. He's not really that interested in art, but he did respect his aunt and he did look after them. So they didn't open these crates until the 60s, right? Mm. When they were opened, however, like what was discovered was extraordinary. Yeah. But also a little bit strange, okay? So you see along with all of these vibrant and truly history-making paintings were 26,000 pages of notes detailing how Clint created the works. What? In what way created? Like notes about what paints she used on what canvases? <laughs> or So one of the notes details, I guess, how she came to start this project. She described that basically... The pieces were commissioned by someone named Amaleel. Now, Amaleel is not a typical art benefactor. Amaleel is a high master. Uh, yep, I see where this is going now. <laughs> yeah, okay, I got it. Yeah, yes. So, yeah, he came to her in a seance, told her to make this work and apparently guided her hand as she painted. So this is where, for me, this story, I'm just like, fuck yes, this is great. This is where we get into some really interesting territory. Ah, right. So this is exciting stuff. So, yeah, so this is where uh, high masters and theosophy and seances and stuff come to the fore. So can you explain a little bit for our audience who don't know what these things are? I can, but in order to do that, I want to go back to Afclint's university days, okay? Okay, all right, so we'll, and I'm put, gonna, we'll just put I'm, that on hold. Yeah, well, this is the story. I'm explaining it, but I'm going to explain it within the chronology of her biography, yeah, okay? okay. Good. All right, so in eight, we're back to 1880 now, okay. going back 26 years before she started these works. Uh, when she was just 18, her sister Hermina died, okay? Now, Afclint had taken an interest in spiritism, Now, spiritism is distinct from spiritualism, Mm -hmm. much in the same way as suffragist is distinct from suffragette, as we were discussing last week. Yeah, good reference. Basically, they're very, very similar. One's sort of more like the European version and one's like the English UK version. There's small distinctions, but for our purposes, it doesn't really matter. Anyway, so as a teenager, she kind of started attending seances, started making you know, contact with the with the dead mm-hmm. as you do at seances. Yeah. Was she looking for her sister? Was she was this because of the grief of having lost her sister? Well, she started before. So she started oh, okay. it when she was about 17. And I think this is more because she belonged to these sort of literary and artistic circles, even as a teenager, because she was studying at the art school. And spirit, spiritism <laughs> and really studying took off. at art school, that's how you get involved with seances <laughs> and the dead and, that, you know. It's inevitable. But like at the time though, remember, she's from this like bougie naval family. Mm, mm -hmm. And so the art world, these sort of literary and artistic circles, they were the people who were genuinely becoming more interested in 
discovering more about the other world because there was so much happening at this time we have to remember in terms of new discoveries of particularly the unseen world things like germ theory and radio waves and radioactivity and all of this kind of stuff, all mm. of this invisible world had started to be discovered. And so people who were interested in, I guess, more of an internal experience of that, people who like artists who were interested in the human condition and exploring the nature of man and what is the soul, they saw that, okay, well, science is starting to discover this unseen world. Can we merge that with this sense of the self and the individual and, and what does that then say mm. to us about the other world of spirits and, and whatever? So it did take off very much among kind of, yeah, the literary and artistic circles of the time of which F. Clint belonged. But it was definitely her sister's death drove her much, much deeper into mm. this world than perhaps she otherwise would have been. But while she became more deeply interested, after like trying to contact her sister, she also started to believe that as a movement, spiritism, it wasn't really everything she was looking for. She felt like it kind of provided like a shortcut mm. for people who weren't ready to receive that level of information. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the true like levers or the, you know, yeah. the people who are really ready for that next stage of spiritual enlightenment. Because, to be perfectly honest, spiritualist seances are often as much they're kind of light entertainment like Mm. everybody gathers in a room politics exactly yes that's right you get some knocking on the wood maybe a spirit plays an instrument and everybody has a a laugh and goes home like they're not getting into the or, or hopefully send their messages of love from beyond right but it's not getting into the deep like what is the soul? What is yeah. the makeup of the universe? Why are we here? What are, what are the answers? Is God to, real? Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Seances aren't answering those questions. And she wanted those deeper answers. And so she was drawn to, <gasps> drum roll, <gasps> theosophy. Yeah. Of course. Which is Madame Blavatsky's particular <laughs> kind of take on all of these. Brainchild, maybe? Yeah, the, the <laughs> Theosophical Society. I, well, it had been introduced into Sweden in 1889. And it was, I guess, like a very much about those bigger, deeper questions. It was sort of one of the first movements that was very much more heavily drawn from Eastern uh, religious practices combined with the West. So it's very esoteric. It does involve the high masters and it includes beliefs such as reincarnation, the idea that we are all here to evolve as humans on an individual level and kind of as a collective as well. And so we come to earth in order to learn lessons. We die, we progress and we progress through multiple planes of existence. So there's sort of seven stages to our soul's experiences I suppose you graduate into each new stage as you become more enlightened so that's sort of theosophy it's a very 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 basic level (laughs) very 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 basic level it's so much more complex than that but she also became interested in Rosicrucianism now have you heard of Rosicrucianism well that's kind of very closely aligned to theosophy in some ways isn't it yeah it is it's Mm. very similar so it that is a another kind of esoteric practice that combines like occultism with various hermetic 
Jewish mystic and Christian Gnostic beliefs. So in that way, lots of overlaps between theosophy and Rosicrucianism. And for anyone who's an expert in these two subjects, I like acknowledge that they're more complex than I'm presenting them. But for the purposes of this story, this is kind of all we need to know. Because yep. otherwise yep. it would take hours to explain it. Yeah, it would take forever. Yeah. So she sort of joined both of these. It became interested in both of these societies, started researching the texts involved. She started wearing a necklace with a plain silver cross with a, a rose in the middle, which was the symbol of the Grosicrucians. Then in 1896, she joined the Edelweiss Society. Ah, sorry, the Von Trapps have come back. Yeah, we're back. I didn't even... <laughs> I Edelweiss. There's always a musical related to whatever we're talking about. Well, there's just so many good musicals in the world, so... It's so true. <laughs> Now, the Edelweiss Society were a circle of women who held regular seances. But again, Afklint was like, mm, this is not enough for me. This is not satisfying my deep yearnings to understand, you know, the mechanics of the universe. And Your so instead, a shit. Yeah. Is that <laughs> yeah. what she's saying? I'm tired of these parlor tricks. <laughs> I want impressed. something more. Yeah. So she and four other members splintered off and they created their own collective. The Famous Five. The Famous Five. Hooray. Yes. So they were known as the Five or Defem in Swedish. Okay. And they were pretty much just, yeah, like dedicated to bettering themselves and their art. They were also all artists hey. through communion with the spirits. Now, this group included Afklint's bestie, Anna Castle also from the Academy of Fine Arts, and three other women called Cornelius Cedarberg, Sigrid Hedman, and Matilda Nilsson. I feel awful that I don't know who any of these women are. No. Well, I didn't either until I started looking up Afklint's story because I only heard about Afklint last year for mm -hmm. the first time, mm -hmm. and I think with the rest of the world. So there's so many female artists that lay dormant yeah. in our you know, history, Absolutely. art history books. Mm. And it's actually difficult to find out very much information about the individual members of the five. I think Anna Castle is really the only one that you can find a little bit more information about. But of course, Googling the five is like not very <laughs> specific. <helpful. laughs> Google's like, not, what, what five? What five, what you five are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> so they should have chosen a more specific name is mm. my point. Mm -hmm. They didn't know. They should have predicted that Google would happen. Yeah, definitely. Anyway, they. That's their fault. <laughs> so they would study spiritual texts and they took part in seances where, yes, they called upon the high masters. Hey. So at their gatherings, the five would get together, they would say prayers, they'd meditate, which they would follow with a sermon. They had an altar with a triangle and a Rosicrucian rose. Uh, they'd spend some time reading a passage from the New Testament and then they would begin their seance. Now, during the seance, they would enter a trance state and commune with the high masters. Now we're up to the part of the story where I can explain to you because, you know, not all of us grew up with mothers who also from time to time attempted to communicate with and channel the high masters. Um, so, so I will explain to those of you who didn't have them in your living room as a teenager from time to time, I will explain what they are basically. So uh, this is a tenant of theosophy, but it's sort of, bled out into a few other sort of new age and esoteric practices in a contemporary kind of 
belief systems, mm. but they're basically the, you might have heard of ascended masters, if not higher masters. They're essentially beings of higher consciousness. So they represent the highest of human wisdom. So those who have ascended through the first five initiations or reincarnations, as I was talking about, there's seven levels. So they've ascended through the first five levels to become spiritual teachers or guides. So among this group accounted spiritual leaders like Jesus and Buddha, Mary, St. Germain and others. So a range of this sort of crosses all lines of religion um, and different spiritual beliefs. And it's sort of like, yeah, all of these are just kind of part of the same thing. Like all world religions are really centralized through I guess some of these theosophical beliefs um, mm. and all of their main leaders are all ascended masters because like I said, through the process of reincarnation and through these seven states of consciousness. And as we move through them, it, we all apparently have the potential to become higher beings. Mm. So yeah, they were the five were in contact with a few particular high masters, Amalail, who I mentioned earlier, Ananda, Clemens, Esther, George, and Gregor. So in terms of actually names I've heard before in like a religious sense, mm. Esther's the only name that I mm. recognise in a religious sense. So all those other names that you've mentioned, do they also correlate to religious deities or religious sort of um, figures? I'm not sure about these ones specifically because I didn't research the individual high masters. Many of them often do though. And like, so, you know, like when you go to a new age shop and you get a pack of like angel cards or something like that. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. And they've got all of the different. Not that I do that. That made it sound like I do that all the time. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I'm always buying angel cards all the time. (laughs) Constantly. We've all seen them, I think, whether you are into it or not. And like, so it's sort of, yeah, like many of them are that sort of what many of us would call angels, I guess, who may also be saints, famous gods and goddesses from various world mythologies. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, I don't know particularly about the origins of the five's high masters. Right. No. Okay. Mm -hmm. But at their sessions, the five would record them, particularly through automatic writing and automatic Mm -hmm. drawing. Yes. Now we have touched on those before. Yes. Yes, we have. But I don't remember the last time we would have talked about automatic writing. I feel Long like it's time been a ago, while. Probably, yeah. So just in case you can't remember or you're newer to the podcast, is this when you enter a trance state so that you kind of removed from your conscious mind and record messages that are being conveyed? Um, you're usually not you're not really consciously aware of what you're writing or drawing. And then when you kind of come to, you might look at your paper and be like, whoa, man, that's amazing. <laughs> like there's a whole message. Whoa, and I, man. I've, so I don't know, again, how Is much that I've what actually she was talked saying about at the time? Whoa, whoa, man. Whoa, man. She came out of the trance. Whoa, whoa man. Dude. Oh, look at these drawings. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Wayne's World was literally on TV just before we started recording this podcast. So, whoa, <laughs> <It's man>. whoa. <laughs> yeah, good. So I know I've told some of these stories before, but like, again, for those of you who don't know, my PhD did touch on a lot. Well, it didn't touch on. It was largely about witches and mediums, right? Which is why 
partly I know so much about this stuff. I haven't actually personally ever channeled High Masters, like I'm not that person, but I have definitely researched a lot of people who have. And I was in the archives in Cambridge researching, like reading journals from Victorian mediums and things like that when I was doing my PhD research. And I remember seeing quite a few automatic drawings and Mm. they are really interesting and they all have these very similar kinds of patterns because I suppose what happens if you're in this altered state of consciousness and I think regardless of whether you're actually contacting a higher being or not your hand is sort of doing these big free loopy patterns right Mm. and so a lot of these drawings have this very free quality to them sort of if you just if you imagine that you're just sort of like you would mindlessly doodle yeah yeah mindless scribbling but they do create patterns and images and a lot of botanics come up and a lot of botanics came up in a lot of the drawings that I saw when I was researching and the same thing happened with a lot of Clint's drawings so there would be a lot of um, sort of geometric shapes Mm. symbols a lot of botanical themes And I think that through this process, Afklin discovered and created a lot of the visual language that would accompany her later paintings. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, she also started experimenting with ideas about like through the five, they were all kind of into exploring the physical and the spiritual world, the inner self nature and various different religions and so I think what's really important to acknowledge here because I know this all sounds very very woo-wah like trust me I know how woo-wah this all sounds (laughs) and I say this as somebody who is skeptical but did grow up with it like I grew up in this house right so I know I feel this is very intimate to me as Mm. well while I'm still very critical of it so I do want to kind of emphasize that even whether or not we believe this, this state of emptied consciousness allows you to rid yourself of all restrictions and assumptions, especially the kinds of rigid rules and forms that have been fed to one through formal art training Mm -hmm. or university Mm -hmm. education and to just be free. And that is what modernism and abstract art is all about. It's about letting go of all of the rules of letting go of all assumptions and communicating emotion in abstract ways and communicating experiences and ideas and philosophical thought through non-conventional, non-representative ways. So an automatic drawing was a technique that was also used in movements like in the Dadaists and other sort of surrealist painters. So, yeah, basically... I'm just sort of defending this process really as being like, look, whether you believe in this or not, the technique itself as a way into abstractionism is really important. But it's also interesting to hear you defend it though as well because it kind of, it does make me think in a lot of ways about the sort of gendered nature of that, right? Like the the gendered nature of approaching art in a way as you say, that's a bit woo-wah, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. that's – there's so many um, – and I, I go back to thinking of somebody like Leonora Carrington yeah. or Remedia Sparrow, who we haven't done an episode on, but she's very much attached to we Leonora Carrington. We will do an episode on her. That is. Yeah, we do. We'll get to her eventually. <laughs> but those women artists who did bring into their art quite unapologetically 
alchemy and mm-hmm. spiritualism and uh, myth and, um, you know, all of this sort of stuff. Yeah. But then it's seen as very feminine, very, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, like all a bit weird and strange well, and is that really art or is that just some feminine bizarreness, yeah. right? Ironically though, Kandinsky published a book on the spiritual in art, which was his treatise on abstractionism. Mm. Mm-hmm. He published that in 1911. But if you read Kandinsky's Wikipedia page versus reading Af Klint's Wikipedia oh, page. Oh, yeah. Does that even get? No fucking yeah. mention of the spiritual in his work except the name of this book. Yeah. Or yeah. the idea that the spiritual in that sense is this expression of deeper philosophical ideas well, or emotions. That's the difference, isn't it? It's the difference between this idea of philosophy Mm. and this idea of spirituality or it's not the same thing. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, philosophy is a a man's game. Philosophy Mm. is a very masculine sort of thing. So if you want to talk about art in terms of philosophy, well, that's respectable. We can do that. But if you want to talk about art in terms of spirituality or mm. theosophy or these yep. outrageous sort of outlandish ideas, that is very strange. That I is very weird. Don't think it's a coincidence that so many because regular listeners of the show will know that our probably our two biggest categories <laughs> that we love to talk about are artists and women involved with the occult, right? <laughs> so like, and we have so many overlaps. We've talked about, well, someone like Leonora Carrington or Pamela Coleman-Smith mm, mm. or Valley Myers, yeah, right? Yeah. Like these are women creating art or uh, Rosalind Norton, yeah, right, yeah. that have very strong spiritual or occult or esoteric themes. And there are also women who, you know, very largely haven't been they're not talked about in the same way as their male mm. peers because mm-hmm. if the men are using these same techniques, as I said, the Dadaists used automatic drawing as well, but we don't talk about it in the same way because that's about becoming in touch with the inner self mm. as opposed to becoming in touch with spirits. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 And I feel that like I have this internal, <laughs> it's funny because I always feel like whenever I talk about, spiritualism or this occult stuff and especially when I talk about the experiences that that I've had in my life and in my like I it's not a secret that my mom is a spiritualist and you know I grew up with a lot of this stuff but I feel this real contrast between wanting to defend those spiritualist beliefs but also wanting to place my feet firmly on the ground Mm. and have that critical like oh no no but I'm like I'm not a crazy person and I'm very intelligent and I can be critical of this and I am critical of this and I I'm not swallowing the pill here do you know what I mean Mm. and I think that that is a very gendered thing as well yeah oh undoubtedly because you're afraid that you're making yourself vulnerable to very particular kinds of criticism Mm-hmm. of not being able to be taken seriously because you have had some sort of personal connection to this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> is that the rant part of the show? I think it is. I think it's a good rant. I think good. it's a rant that will come back again in the future. Always. It's not the first Always. time we've had this rant. <laughs> no. But it's also it's a very hard thing to reconcile. Like yeah. how do you reconcile it? I don't know. I don't know. 
That's why the rant continues. <laughs> it is. It is. We're so conflicted. But <laughs> if we come back to Afclint, whatever we believe about what was happening with Afclint, it was in one of these seances, uh, as I said, 1906, that she received this special commission from Amaleo, who told her to paint a series of grand, grand paintings that were going to adorn this building that she was also going to be oh. to build a spiral-shaped temple. Fuck yeah. Yeah. So she begins what I guess became the first of these abstract works called Paintings for the Temple. And the idea was that these would decorate the temple's spiral interior. Now, ironically, she never got to build the temple, but the Guggenheim. Oh, my God. It's a spiral. Yes. So eventually her she paintings was in a spiral? did indeed oh adorn a spiral interior. That is true. I have been to the Guggenheim. Something we might be able to call a temple perhaps. Yeah, definitely. That's right. The Guggenheim is great for that. The fact that you, yeah, you just walk up this one ongoing ramp around and around. Yeah, to look I've, at all I've the... never been there, but I've seen pictures. Well, and, and you can see pictures of that exhibition there's many pictures of that exhibition if you want to see the paintings adorning the spiral interior of the Guggenheim so at least they eventually did get to where they were kind of destined (laughs) to be that's actually really quite prophetic it it? is in a way yeah like in a sidestep it's a sidestep prophecy I feel like that prophecy came true I genuinely 100% think that that's accurate cool all right Guggenheim is basically a spiral temple well, yeah, she got I it. think you can Bam. think about it like that. Done. Good job. <laughs> Done. So this series started what was a really productive period for Afklint. She painted an average of one painting every five days. What? Until 1908. Fuck I know. Me, I can't finish anything in five days. I know. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> Meanwhile, we're all here in like lockdown, like <laughs> doing nothing. No, we're not putting any pressure on anyone to be productive in this period. Oh, God, no. 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 <laughs> but she was very productive. Wow. There were 193 paintings in total in the Temple series, Jeez. and 111 of them were created in just this two year period. Wow, that is insane. That's so prolific. That's crazy. She was prolific and prophetic. Love it. (laughs) So of the creation of the paintings, Afklint wrote, the paintings were painted directly through me without any preliminary drawings and with great force. I had no idea what the paintings were supposed to depict. Nevertheless, I worked swiftly and surely without changing a single brushstroke. Now, what's really interesting about that, I think, is that when you think of abstract art and if you think about a statement like that, I painted them without any preliminary drawings, without a plan, she just painted, Mm. is that when you look at her paintings, you can see very precise, exact geometry in these paintings. Mm. Like they don't Mm. look like free painting, Mm. Mm -hmm. you know, like that we might imagine being very kind of flowy or swirly or whatever. They're very precise. Yeah, like symmetrical. And you don't kind of, you don't just fluke. Symmetry. Exactly. Like she's using codes, alphabets, symbols. There's, yeah, symmetries and dualities. So she's playing with these sort of 
ideas of the dualities of male, female, good and evil, earthly and otherworldly. She's got color codes. I think she uses color theory. So she's got like yellow representing female, blue representing male. These paintings are exploring ideas like the creation of the universe and chaos and mm -hmm. the human connection to the universe. She has a series because there are sort of mini series within the temple series and one of them is about sort of man's evolution so it, it goes through like infancy through youth adulthood old age and there are some some Seven really stages of man the stages of man yes <laughs> in his time plays many parts and those ones i think are that was my shakespeare for the day <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and that series particularly is, I think, the most striking. They're called the 10 largest. And that's with that progression of man, I suppose, through mm -hmm. age. And there are some really quite complex readings of her work available if anyone's interested. I can't really go into it in depth in, in the <laughs> scope of this podcast. But basically they sort of drew – there's a lot of um, motifs, I guess, in her work of the esoteric, metaphysical – you know what I'm saying. However, F. Clint's incredible period of productivity was broken in 1908 when she met another of her potential spiritual heroes, I guess somebody that she hoped would be very influential on her, Rudolf Steiner. Oh, of the Steiner school. Yes. Weirdly, yeah, we were right. talking about Rudolf Steiner earlier today. We were. Kind of. did we're talking expect, about Steiner schools. <laughs> we did. I did not expect that to come back into the conversation today, but there you go. Yeah. Nice in one day. So if you don't know who Steiner is, he was a guy who basically he split from, so he was a theosophist, but he split from theosophy to create his own society called, now I, I've tried practicing this word. I'm going to give it a run hot <laughs> go. The Anthroposophical, Anthroposophical Society, right? So very similar. And he did also create the Steiner schools. So yeah, he was just interested in a lot of those very similar ideas. Now, Af Clint was really excited to meet him. Like she wanted to share her mission with him, her work with him. She was like, this guy is going to fucking get it. I feel like you this know, is going like, badly. This is going to end badly. Who's going to totally be like, yes, what you're creating is so important. And it's exploring all of these big questions of the universe that we have. Uh, <sighs> no. but, and she also thought that he might help her to create this temple mm. on an island south of Stockholm. <sighs> Don't Alas. think I need to tell you, Alicia, <laughs> that Steiner was not as impressed with her work as she thought he would be. Oh. He didn't understand her paintings and he even sort of like questioned why she was painting via mediumship in the first place. Like what? he actually suggested to her that she give up her communion with the spirits and just sort of paint according to her own intuition. Mm -hmm. which was not really what she wanted to hear. Like he didn't buy what she was selling. Like he couldn't get behind it. Yeah. He didn't get it, man. No, he didn't. And I think the fact that Steiner of all people didn't get it had a huge impact on her. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. not just in this moment, because it had a huge impact on her in 1908 when this happened. But I, th I would wager that, his reaction is one of the reasons why she kept her painting so private. Yeah, actually, that's really, that's quite sad because, I mean, that would have been crushing. It's that idea yeah. of, you know, meeting your hero yeah. and then your hero totally and utterly crushes you. Yeah. That, yeah, absolutely. That would be 
yeah. a pretty traumatic experience. So I think he might be responsible for partly at least why we've not ever heard of her. <sighs> Fuck that guy. <laughs> Fuck that guy. <laughs> Fuck you, Steiner. But it did. It totally crushed her and – so she took a break from painting for a few years and instead um, she started caring for her mother who had really sadly just recently gone blind. So she may have needed to take some time out to care for her mother anyway. Mm. They did live together. So she lived with her mother from 1898 to 1918. Now, the other thing that that kind of like made me think of is that I don't know anything about her personal life. Like yeah. there's very little written about her personal life. I think she was somebody who was so dedicated to her work that she didn't really ever have much of a, you know, she didn't really have relationships. She had, she had friendships. Like she was very like close the with the members yeah. of the five. Yeah. Mm. But those are, I think, like the most important relationships to her, the relationship with her mother and the relationship that she had with the five. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. She doesn't need to have a boyfriend to be interested. No, she was probably, that was probably very fulfilling. Yeah, exactly. So she kind of spent some of this time just reading, studying theosophical thought. She also had to keep earning money. So she did continue painting commissions. Right. Like so portraits and more, landscapes. Yeah, yeah, more back to the realist stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she was painting that stuff at the same time mm-hmm. because that's how she earned her living. And it was a modest living. Um, yeah. She was not wealthy by any means. She was sort yeah. of getting by, I suppose. Yeah. And meanwhile, fucking like Steiner's telling all his friends, like Kidinsky and Modrian to like check out all this fucking wacky shit. And they're yeah. like, yeah, yeah, we're going to do that. We're going to yeah, do yeah. that. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> We can't prove that, but no, you, know, we can't. you never know. But eventually she did get back to painting and she completed the Temple series in 1915. And once the Temple series was finished, so was her kind of channeled communion with the masters. So she did paint more work, but her later body of work was not, according to her and her notes, not painted under their direct spiritual guidance, but instead represents her own work i guess if you see a distinction being there at all Mm, okay she also sort of moved from oils to watercolors but her themes remained very similar so she's still painting spiritual ideas sort of the duality of the physical and the spiritual and and all that kind of stuff and so she's doing this for a while again she's just painting her commissions painting her various abstract works uh, not exhibiting to anybody, she would only ever show her work to like small circles of friends. So she only exhibited to, I guess, people she felt safe with. Mm. So to her spiritual friends, basically. But then in 1920, she met up again with her frenemy, old Rudolf Steiner. Mm. It had been 12 years, so maybe she had let go some of (laughs) the trauma because she joined his society. So she joined the Anthroposophical Society, which, as I said, it is an offshoot of theosophy and seeks to uh, nurture the life of the soul, both in the individual and in human society, on the basis of a true knowledge of the spiritual world. I feel um, like you read that, Lauren. I don't feel like you just said that. No, like uh, that, that is copied and pasted from our good friend Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Thank you. It's just the Cliff Notes version. I don't have time. We don't have time. 
It's all right. I'm not marking your assignment. So <laughs> if I was marking your assignment, I definitely would be like, mm, where is this lifted from? Hello. So, but anyway. That's why I read it in that affected voice so that you would know. <laughs> Thank and you. That's my quote voice. Yeah, I like it. So the Anthroposophical Society had headquarters in Dornach in Switzerland or Dornach. I don't know how to say that. Dornach. Uh, Dornach. Sounds good to me. Dornach. 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 <laughs> that sounds that, – that that's Dornach. a word that you could very easily – yeah, turn into something like Dornach. <laughs> don't think that's what it's called. No. 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 <laughs> and so Afklin travelled there and she conducted some archival research as well. So archive buddies. <laughs> Oh, what a tenuous boated string, if that's even a saying. That's not a saying. But anyway. It is now. I like it. Good one. You've both done archival research. Yeah. You're on basically the same person. themes. <laughs> we both are wanting to understand this world. Well, I was wanting to understand it from a historical perspective. Love she it. was wanting to decipher the messages that had been channeled into her works. So she was sort of looking for answers to some of these symbols and the alphabets yeah. and stuff that she had, had drawn. Uh, long bow to draw. That's yeah. what I was trying the, to say. Yeah, that's the one. That's the, that's the <laughs> saying. Anyway, sorry, carry on. <laughs> but she was ultimately unable to find what she was looking for. So she did not find the answers that she sought. Mm. Didn't come it out with It seems like a, a theme. Yeah. I think she spent her life seeking and I don't know if – I think you would probably have to read her 20,000 pages worth of notes to know whether or not she found what she was looking for. <laughs> yeah. And maybe the biography that's coming out next year can help us to understand whether or not she found what she was looking for mm, in all of yeah. her research. I found a, an idea for a new novel out of my <laughs> archival research. It wasn't helpful for the novel that I was writing at the time, but I oh, do still have notes for the I second one. I know the one, one you're talking about. Yeah. I don't I know what you're talking about. Mm. Nobody else does. <laughs> Secrets. Secrets. So, yeah, so I guess just – for some context, like because she was continuing to paint her abstract work at the same time, and this is up in the sort of 1920s and 30s, and abstract art had taken off by now. Like it was, mm. it existed, right? Mm -hmm. So as I said, like Wassily Kadinsky, a Russian artist, he published on the Spiritual in Art in 1911, and so what's, I guess, conflicting here is that she had, of course, created the Temple series in 1906, five years before 1911. But by this period, the art that she's producing is, I guess, it's no longer novel in the same way. But, well, abstractionism itself, that came from traditions like kind of, I guess, what we were talking about before, like the Impressionists and then the post-Impressionists, such as Paul Gauguin, Van Gogh, Cezanne, all of these artists who were playing with color and expressive forms and shapes then we get like cubism and picasso and new understandings of shape and form but if you look at these works and then you look at af clint's af clint mm. is so unique mm -hmm. like have you looked at her painting i have yes and actually the only thing that kind of it didn't even really kind of remind me much of kadinsky or any of those sort of artists the only other artist I could sort of think of was that there is a, an artist and I don't even know if she's 
French or whatever, but her name is kind of French. Delaney? She's the only one I, I could think, think I of. saw that name come up actually in my reading. Yeah, she's like the only one I could think of that was mm. even vaguely sort of and in line with her. Female artist. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. is interesting. Yeah. But, yeah, but it is very avant-garde. Like it is very, very unique and yeah. very, very different. Yes. It doesn't feel like it belongs to 1906 like it seriously feels like it belongs to like the 60s or something like that do you know what I mean yes yeah yeah definitely and so because I guess the reason I'm talking about this is to put her into context because this is basically the bulk of her biography like there's not really much else written about her after this she died in Dörlsholm in Sweden in 1944 she lived a pretty good run she was nearly 82 But yeah, like I said, her art had only been exhibited a handful of times and it was not in the art world. It was at like spiritual conferences. Mm -hmm. So it's really only now that critics are not just turning an eye to her and her work, but are also thinking about how she does connect with this movement. Because like I was saying, we've sort of got post-impressionism and cubism and other modernist forms of art happening at the same time, but it's harder to see that direct lineage in the same way that we do when we trace those other artists Mm. and we can see how, you know, Kandinsky was influenced by, you know, the Picasso or whatever it is, people who've come before. With F. Clint, I think it's a little bit more abstract. (laughs) Like we don't know. So there are some critics who are starting to question whether or not the history books need to be rewritten mm. Um, mm-hmm. and whether we start to include her as the person who first painted mm. abstract art. Yeah. If Kandinsky is not the first, maybe mm. it's Af Clint. But critics are split on this. So... During the 80s, like when she was first exhibited, it was two pretty mixed reviews. At the first exhibition in 1986, one critic wrote, to accord them being her paintings, to accord them a place of honour alongside the works of Kandinsky, Mondrian, Malevich and Kupka is absurd. Afklint is simply not an artist in their class and, (gasps) dare I say it, would never have been given this inflated treatment if she had not been a woman. Oh. Yeah. Slap. Slap, slap, slap. I know. Fuck off. Like, oh, she's extraordinary. She's a woman. So uh, they're they're giving her undue over attention. They're just trying to like, it's just part of feminism's like project to like, you know, take over everything or something. That's how I imagine he thought. (laughs) But she was doing it before. before. And if you look at these paintings. These paintings are extraordinary. I'm not an art critic. I'm not an art historian. But you know what you like. But I know what I like and I like these. (laughs) And I do highly encourage everyone to look them up. Please, please look them up. Contemporary critics, however, have been a little bit more generous and admiring. One critic, John Yao, wrote, "Uh, this is not new age art. This is art for a new age that, despite what we may wish, still has not arrived. Which I think is also very much how Af Clint felt. She Mm -hmm. felt that the world was not ready for her art and that's why she kept it hidden. Mm. And and that's why she wrote that clause into her will that it couldn't be open for 20 years. I think she was hoping that the world would be more receptive to her art 
in the 60s. And mm. it, look, it probably, I feel like in many circles, maybe if, if they'd taken it to a different museum, they might have looked at it in, in, in the 60s. Yeah, Especially if they uh, had partaken in some of what was popular in the 60s, probably <laughs> would have looked at her works and be like, this is fucking radical. This is amazing. <laughs> I've taken some psychedelic drugs yeah. and I like it. <laughs> I like this. But even without psychedelics, it's still amazing. <laughs> mm, mm. I also like this quote from a critic in the New York Times. The idea that a woman got there first and with such style is beyond thrilling. Yes, I know art is not a competition. Every artist's there is a different place. Abstraction is a pre-existing condition found in all cultures. But still, Afklint's there seems so radical, so unlike anything else going on at the time. Her paintings definitely explode the notion of modernist abstraction as a male project. Mm, mm -hmm. And that was – I'll put all of the links to the, like, reviews and articles about this in the show notes, but that one would have been by Roberta Smith. So Mm, I like that. Much more generous. (laughs) So there is now, though, the, the Moderna Musée in Stockholm, the museum that rejected their collection initially. They do now have a dedicated Hilma Afklint room. How the tables have turned. <laughs> they, they have. They still want to kind of exhibit her alongside other artists because they want to kind of put her in context. And there are 1,200 paintings in total in the Hilma Afklint collection, which is overseen Whoa. by her foundation. And the foundation signed a deal with the museum to keep a small collection in perpetuity. So mm-hmm. the museum in Stockholm will always have some Afklint, which yeah. is great. If anyone's in Stockholm, please go and visit. But she's all over the place. They also have all of these pages of her writing explaining the meaning of her work. And actually I think some of them are on exhibition right now. So if you happen to be in Sweden, notebooks of the five, including some of their automatic drawings made both individually and as a group are on view through most of 2020 at the Moderna Museet. So the rest of us can't go there, but if you happen to be in Sweden and you can get to the museum, you can see some of these examples of their automatic drawing. Cool. If the museum's open. Oh, fuck yeah. It's, oh, I think Sweden's still open. Remember? They haven't but shut down. But I thought down. Sweden was still open and I thought it was a disaster. Yeah. Uh, mm. it, wasn't that the whole thing? <laughs> yes. Sweden was still open and yes. it was But the point is going it's open is all I'm saying. Look, you probably still don't go out, but. <laughs> probably still don't go to the museum right now. Right Even now. if it's open. <laughs> Later. <laughs> yeah. Later on. So, yeah. So, I guess the thing is, I think particularly like in the last year or two she started finally to get the recognition that she deserves as i said there is a biography coming next year by julia voss that'll be out in 2021 and that documentary beyond the visible which has just been released so hopefully that gets wider distribution and yeah that's pretty much my story mm, of, good story uh, of clint Love a story about an artist. Love it. Especially, you know, unappreciated artists. Just love it. But the thing is, right, as well, just going back to that quote before about art is such a subjective thing anyway, Mm. right? Mm. So whether or not you actually think those paintings are anywhere near as good as the abstract painters who came later, Mm -hmm. it's kind of, that's beside the point, isn't it? It's because not, nobody was doing this. Nobody when she did was it. doing it when she was doing it. Nobody. That's the point. She had no points of reference. Yeah. So it's not about whether or not her work is 
you know, an exemplary example mm. of abstract art. It's not about whether or not you like it as abstract art or whether or not you think it's, you know, the pinnacle of abstract art. That's not the point. The point is it's the beginning of yeah. abstract art. She, yeah. was th- she was there. She was the one who was doing it. So yeah. that's kind of what matters, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. Like, it really, it's so, so ahead of its time. Truly. Mm. And when you, again, when you compare it to other abstract art that came just a few years later, it's utterly different. Like, yes, you can see they're both abstract because they're both doing these, it's free representation, right? Mm. And that's what abstract art is. It's about letting go of all of those sort of preconceived ideas. It's about exaggerating and distorting and using color and symbol to represent something rather than well, a representative object. So they're both doing that. And I guess in that sense, abstractionism is more of a a mission or a style as opposed to a movement, you know, like it doesn't in the, like impressionism, we can say belongs to this period, to this period in, in Europe. Whereas abstractionism doesn't have that same sort of connotations with a time and a place because it's Mm. really more about the form. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And it is also about, like you say as well, it is about symbolism as well, Mm. which in which case does make it millennia old because that's how humans have have represented things for um, since we've existed. Uh, There are arguments that, uh, yeah, abstract art goes back to, you know, the beginning of man. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Because it is, it's it's concerned with representing the symbolic rather than the yeah, representation, representing yeah. experiences and emotions in non-representative ways. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a bit of art history <laughs> for you. Yeah. We're not art historians, but fuck, no. we love having a go at it, don't we? Sorry if anyone is an art historian. They're probably. <laughs> it's like when you watch. I don't know. I guess if you watch a TV show about a something that you do for a job and you're like, oh, you're like a forensic wrong. scientist and yeah. you watch like those forensic yeah. CSI or whatever those fucking shows are <laughs> called and you're like, that's not how you do it. No. So we're not experts. We're just enthusiastic amateurs. I do love some art history though. Yeah. Yeah. Go there every time. I'm going to have to like, oh, figure out what my favorite Afclint painting is and like, I'm going to put a bunch on Instagram. Good. Excellent. Looking forward to it. But yeah, go check her out. I highly encourage it. I think everyone will be very surprised when Ooh. they look at it. Big, big call. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Well, thank you, Lauren. Enjoyed that ramble through, <laughs> through a bit of art. Do you know where we're going next week? I've kept us in the sort of late Victorian, early 20th century where we have been for a few weeks now. Are we going to stay there or are you going to take us out? Oh, no. We're going to stay there, aren't we? <laughs> I'm pulling a really awkward face because <laughs> uh, we might oh, we might be in the same period oh, of history. Oh, that's okay. Again. That's okay. Oh, God. We're allowed. I'm so sorry. We're allowed to do what we want. Whether We make the rules here. <laughs> we do make the rules. <laughs> so if we want to stay in the 19th century, early 20th century, <laughs> then you just have to fucking put up with it. <laughs> Yeah, we will go there again soon. But you know what? I've also got on the cards, don't worry, you know, there's a whole season ahead of us. Mm. I've also got some mythological time. Good times. In the yeah, future. We haven't, we haven't been to any mythology for a while. Not no, since. we haven't. So yeah, don't worry. I've got some season. mythology coming up. <laughs> that's all I can promise that's you all. that's different. Okay. <laughs> that's all right. Yeah. That's okay. I haven't decided where I'm going next time. It's my turn yet. So, 
you're ahead of me. All right, good, good. So, we, you know, we'll try and shake things up. But yeah. The next episode, we won't be shaking things up in time at all, but there is a horror story involved, oh, which good. I'm excited about. Oh, ex- yes. I mean, you were dropping some dark hints to me earlier today. Oh, look, this person, I mean, her life is very interesting and the horrific part is a very small part of her life. <laughs> like it's just a very small part, but it's so horrific that I'm awkwardly excited about it. I shouldn't okay. be so excited about this, but anyway, I am. All right, we'll, we'll, we'll look forward to some horror next time. <laughs> and in Sorry. the meantime, try not to let the horror of the world overwhelm you, everybody. <laughs> the horror of real life bring you down. <laughs> Stay on top of that, everyone. Yeah. And, of course, in the meantime, you can catch up on all of our past episodes. Yeah. You can leave us a review. Hey, oh, this is something. Uh-huh. Uh, so we got like a one-star review. <laughs> recently yeah I've never read a negative review before (laughs) but the thing is is our one star review and I I mean I love this because you know we talk a lot about gender in this show and about (laughs) particular ways that genders are perceived it was about our voices it was it was about our voices being too high-pitched too annoying that's that's such and I mean that's fine people have annoying voices and that's okay (laughs) I don't even like listening to my voice. That's all right. But the point of the story is I felt feel like that's such a gendered yeah, thing to say. Totally. I feel like there are very few male shows mm. out there where people like just didn't like his voice. Yeah. So I couldn't stand listening. his voice. Yeah. His voice was so deep and resonant. I just hated it. <laughs> like I just don't feel like that's. You know, anyway, yeah. that's all I wanted to say. And they didn't even listen. To, they said they listened to the first two minutes of the show and that was it. And, and that so also you don't even know what the show's about. That, even t- that also tends to be where our voices are most high-pitched, I feel, because that's where we're like, <laughs> welcome, everyone. <laughs> we're so excited. We're so excited to be here. So, look, anyway, I just wanted to have a quick rant about that. I feel like I've got that off my chest. Good, good. So, so if you, you have know. any genuine Constructive reviews. criticism. Yes. Constructive criticism will be great. Or high pra- high praise is better. We prefer yeah, high praise. Fuck constructive criticism. <laughs> constructive criticism can be emailed to deviantwomenpodcast <laughs> at gmail.com. Praise can be put in the reviews. Yes. Good stuff. Uh, you can also find us on Patreon where you can catch up on a whole bunch of extra content. We have blooper reels and, of course, our Holes in History series. We just recently dropped an episode on Alicia. Valeda Snow, yeah. Queen of the Trumpet. Queen of the Trumpet. Yeah. And a good oh. compliment to if you enjoyed the Bessie Smith episode. So Afclint didn't have a title. Oh, no. Let's call her the mystic of abstractionism. Good. Excellent. She's got one now. (laughs) Bam. Love it. And, of course, you can buy your Deviant Women merchandise, you know, as long as my voice doesn't annoy you too much. (laughs) You can find us on Etsy where you can get yourself a shirt and or enamel pin. That's right. And, as always, a very big thank you to Brenda Davies for the sound, Indy Hui for the music, and to Dan our executive producer. And we'll see you guys next time. Bye.